welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're going to go into further detail and discuss the plight of Rohingya Muslims and other religious minorities in light of the recent coup d'etat that took place earlier this month in Burma, also known as Myanmar. On February 1st, the Burmese military declared the results of the November 2020 democratic elections to be invalid, declared a one-year state of emergency, and detained state councillor Aung San Suu Kyi and President U Win Mint and other state officials. They face multiple charges and remain in detention. Yusuf expressed concern after the news of the coup about the potential for further violence against religious and ethnic communities since the military has been perpetrating a genocidal campaign against the Rohingya, and these same military officials are now fully in charge again. The military's 2017 operations and continued crackdown against the Rohingya in Rakhine State sparked mass migration to Bangladesh and other Southeast Asian countries, as well as internal displacement. The military is accused of targeting Rohingya with killings, mass rape, and other sexual violence, disappearances, forced starvation, arbitrary detentions, and arrests, among other things. Last year, the International Court of Justice issued a provisional order requiring that Burma refrain from acts of genocide against the Rohingya and also ensure that the military and other groups subject to its control refrain from genocide or related acts. The ICC continues to investigate the country for crimes against humanity. We're fortunate today to have with us Naomi Kikoler, director of the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you so much, Dwight, for for having me. Now, the Holocaust Museum has spent a significant amount of time following developments in Burma and traveled there in recent years, and you'll get into some of that. But first, I want to ask you, what's your take on why the coup happened in the first place, and and what are the potential implications uh, for Rohingya and other religious minority communities? That's a great question, Dwight. And there's been a lot of speculation about the coup. I think two key things are important to keep in mind when we talk about that. The first is that those who led the coup in Burma are the same individuals who are largely responsible for the commission of genocide against the Rohingya and crimes against humanity and war crimes against other religious and ethnic minorities in the country. The second is that the recent election was carried out Uh, in a way in which we saw the complete disenfranchisement of the Rohingya community, simply because of their ethnic and religious identity. I think those are imperative uh, for us to remember and that we don't lose sight of the rampant impunity and discriminatory policies that have contributed to, to these events and are relevant as we talk about the coup. In regards to the election and the coup, main theory that's been suggested is that the desire for the military chief to regain in power was a key driver. 
the military's USDP party only received 6.9% of the parliamentary seats in the November 2020 elections, whereas Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy received over 80%. And given this kind of assertion that the military chief Min Aung Lang has long aspired to power um, and already saw a kind of rescission of his power after the 2015 election where there was a landslide NLD uh, victory, the, the sentence that the coup prior to the retirement that he was going to have from the military um, was one reason why the, the coup took place. So it would allow for him to actually stay with some degree of control and power over the country. In terms of the implications of the Rohingya and other religious minority communities, uh, in particular, you know, Chin, Kachin, Karin, Rakhine, uh, and Shan communities, uh, though they've been the long targets of violent campaigns by the Burmese military. The Burmese military has committed serious human rights violations against them, violations of international law, including war crimes. And I mentioned already genocide in 2017 against the Rohingya. Now that the military is in power, our concern is that it has carte blanche to continue atrocities against the Rohingya and other communities. Any restrictions imposed by the civilian government on the military's activities have basically been removed. In September 2017, Min Aung Lang described the military's campaign against the Rohingya as an unfinished job from World War II and that the military was working on solving the problem. Uh, one of the ways they addressed it was through the commission of genocide. So we're concerned about the possibility of future atrocities at the hands of the military. We're also very concerned about the one million Rohingya who currently are living in refugee camps across the board in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh. As the risks increase within Burma, uh, it makes it virtually impossible for these re, uh, refugees to repatriate to Rakhine State in a safe, dignified and voluntary way and not face a risk of of genocide. So with the military in control, the conditions in Rakhine are likely only going to worsen. Well, Toby, can you give us a sense of uh, the existing legal framework uh, and the various laws and regulation uh, supported by the military that impact uh, Rohingya in the country? It, and I guess, it, as, you're, as you're saying now, I mean, with this state of emergency in place, does this really uh, matter any of these this legal framework or laws, uh, any protection for the Rohingya now with this one year state of emergency, uh, can the military do whatever it wants as as uh, as a lot of people are are concerned about? Well, unfortunately, I think something that's important to to note is that even under a period where there were certain democratic reforms put in place within the country, uh, for the Rohingya, that had little impact in terms of improving the legal protections that they were afforded by the state. They were still denied citizenship. The government uh, led by Aung San Suu Kyi did not uh, address a longstanding issue, which was the um, widely called for restoration of the citizenship of the Rohingya community. So as a result, they faced a precarious legal uh, situation uh, prior to this coup. With the announcement of this year-long state of emergency, uh, that unfortunately, their situation has only been further exacerbated, as has the situation for many vulnerable communities. Under the state of emergency, all legislative, executive, and judicial powers in the country were transferred to the commander-in-chief of defense services. Uh, General Min and Lang, who I mentioned before, 
it's important to note, has been named by the United Nations Myanmar fact-finding mission as a priority subject for investigation and prosecution when it comes to genocide and crimes against humanity. Uh, the military has replaced all of the NLD governments. They've re uh, removed NLD-appointed ministers and deputies and named replacements under the military's new administration. And, you know, with the information flows being interrupted, it's difficult to have a clear view of how the military is using its new powers. There has been a curtailing of public gatherings. We've seen reports of brutal crackdowns on protesters. We know that with the suspension of um, certain aspects of uh, protective laws around privacy and security of citizens during the emergency, that that implicates um, the potential for an increase in arrests, searches and seizures by the police in residential areas, uh, changes in terms of how long someone can be detained without any explanation, uh, restrictions in terms of communications of telecommunication and, and how that can be intercepted by the military. So there are a number of very worrying uh, new authorities that the government, uh, the military, sorry, leadership has. This is impactful for all communities, especially those who are standing in opposition to the coup. The Rohingya uh, are particularly at risk given the instability and the movement of power into the hands of the military who we already know have identified the Rohingya as a community to be targeted for crimes against humanity and genocide. Um, it's important to just kind of underscore that the Burmese government, whether it is civilian or a military government, remains bound by its obligations under international law. And you already noted the provisional measures uh, that the International Court of Justice um, issued, whereby the Burmese government needs to take steps to prevent genocide. That's in keeping with upholding the uh, Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, um, and where the military government is committing mass atrocity crimes, or if they do in the in the future, they will be held liable in international or national fora, wherever the courts are able to have jurisdiction in the, the future. So the situation was precarious for the Rohingya in particular prior to this coup and have only been enhanced, as has uh, the situation for all of those who are in opposition to the, the coup because of the state of emergency. You know, I mentioned earlier uh, the consequences of the 2017 military operations, which you also referred to, which led to that mass migration of hundreds of thousands, some say, you know, 700,000 or more Rohingya uh, refugees uh, to, to Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, where many still report they're facing discrimination abuses even there. Um, what can you tell us about the current state of, uh, of refugees there in Cox's Bazaar, Rohingya in particular, and and what are, are their prospects going forward? Because there was an effort to try to start a process to return them, you know, in the past couple of years. And now, now that we're going on four years with this new state of emergency, what, where, where do things look like going forward? Well, Dwight, you know, the last uh, bearing witness trip that the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide took prior to the start of COVID was in February 2020 to Cox's Bazaar to meet with Rohingya to better understand what some of their needs and asks were of the international community. And it was incredibly uh, humbling to hear over and over everyone that we spoke to one consistent call, and that was to be able to return home. 
And it's important to remember that those that are in Cox's Bazaar are not only those who fled in 2017, but they represent communities that have fled multiple attacks on uh, their community over the last 20 years. We met with people who had fled in 1992 um, and who had fled kind of subsequent attacks, and they all echoed the desire to be able to return home. Many of the newer refugees were very hopeful that that was on the horizon. So clearly the deterioration of the situation within Myanmar right now has left a lot of people feeling uh, even more frustrated and as though they have a sense of hopelessness uh, over the, the potential to return home. The second thing that they continued to call for was for justice and accountability. And again, with the coup, we already saw that the government of Myanmar continued to deny the commission of genocide and other mass atrocity crimes. One can only imagine that with the military in power, they are going to be even more uh, reluctant to cooperate with the International Court of Justice case and to uh, further kind of domestic investigations or any avenues for accountability domestically. So that's just a little bit of a kind of a scene setter. Um, unfortunately, you know, conditions within the camps have been deteriorating uh, alongside the increased feelings of hopelessness and desperation. The camps are overcrowded. Uh, Rohingya refugees are denied the right to work. And there's over 500,000 Rohingya children who currently don't have access to formal education. There's been considerable rising insecurity in the camps, including kidnappings, physical violence, extortion, intimidation. And despite kind of calls to not do this, uh, the government of Bangladesh has sent nearly 10,000 refugees to Basanchar, a silt island that is incredibly vulnerable to natural disasters. Uh, the UN's been prevented from doing an independent assessment of the island's um, habitability. So we have really serious questions about what the long-term security and stability of the uh, plight of Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh is. The prospect for repatriation in the wake of the coup is virtually slim. Um, the Bangladesh government had hoped to see the Rohingya refugees returned as soon as possible. We need to be extremely careful and watch to make sure that they are not coerced um, into returning. Uh, we've seen at times in the late 1970s and early 1990s forced repatriation of tens of thousands of Rohingya. Um, that was done largely through restricting humanitarian access to the camps and starving thousands of Rohingya to death. Uh, so, you know, this is a particularly fragile moment, uh, and we need to be very careful uh, as an international community that those who are displaced are not returned to an environment where they face a now even more heightened risk of genocide, uh, and that the, the kind of needs of the Rohingya refugees are being met by the government of Bangladesh with the assistance of the, the international community. Yeah, unfortunately, a, a very a dismal picture. We we actually at USERF uh, produced a uh, fact sheet uh, talking about some of those who uh, uh, refugees who escaped into Thailand, Indonesia, and Malaysia, uh, and uh, we we published that a few months ago. I'll, I'll reference that at the end. But again, uh, you know, given the given the current coup and the situation we're in the past several weeks. You know, the, the big question is, what should the U.S. government and the broader international community now be doing, uh, not only in response to what's going on with the coup, <clears throat> which we've seen some response by President Biden, uh, you know, who, who's approved sanctions against Burma's military. Um, but 
now related to what could be happening to uh, Rohingya and others, uh, other religious minorities. We know that the uh, Secretary of State, uh, uh, that Anthony Blinken, uh, basically said in his confirmation hearings a month ago that they are in, going to review uh, the determination of whether or not uh, the military committed a genocide uh, against the Rohingya people. In your estimation, what are some other policy options here? We've, we've talked about some of the international ICJ and ICC processes and, and some of the condemnations and sanctions, but is there anything else uh, that can be done uh, to put pressure on the military right now? You know, that is the, the really vexing question to figure out uh, what the options are and whose voice might resonate most with the, the military. What's clear is that we need uh, a whole of community, a whole of international community um, engagement. And ideally, you know, one voice, one clear voice expressing concern um, being relayed to the, the military. Uh, along with a clear message that if crimes are committed, uh, those that are perpetrating the crimes will be held accountable. There's been flickers of unity within the UN Security Council, but I think it, it will remain elusive to see that type of unity, um, in part because China remains an outlier when it comes to um, policy responses towards Burma and the Commission of Crimes there. What's really important, and this has been something that was true uh, many years ago as well when there was conversations around how best to promote democracy is that we need to see a carefully kind of calibrated response whereby addressing the coup is done alongside addressing the risks that the Rohingya and other ethnic and religious minorities face. For the administration in Capitol Hill, we can't see a bifurcation of this kind of set of questions around democracy promotion and addressing the coup and dealing with the Rohingya genocide um, and other risks. We need a mutually reinforcing strategy. And that requires going beyond what you referred to. And I think all welcome the use of smart sanctions um, by the Biden administration. We saw that there was clear evidence that this had an impact on the military's behavior um, during the period of reform leading up to the 2015 election. But we also know that there are other tools available. Uh, one that's been much touted is an international uh, arms embargo, uh, continuing to promote the rights of all ethnic minorities in Burma, stressing the need for a pluralistic approach, uh, a recognition of the diversity of the country, and that there is not just one single party or leader that we need to be listening to, but we need to have a much broader aperture, listening to voices from all communities in Burma, in particular, those that have been victimized for too long. Uh, Congress, uh, in some regards, has been good at making sure that on a regular basis, there are leaders from the Rohingya community, Kachin, Karin, and others coming. We need to continue to see that unity of purpose and having their voices heard and recognize that Aung San Suu Kyi is one of a number of voices that need to be taken into account at this particular moment. Pursuing justice and acknowledging the commission of crimes is an important avenue that the uh, current administration and Congress can help to reinforce. We don't think that the coup in any way should delay efforts to uh, undertake 
a determination uh, on the nature of the crimes committed and to acknowledge the genocide that was undertaken. We believe that the groundbreaking work done by the Department of State uh, and the report that was um, initiated by the Department of State in 2018, where over 1,400 Rohingya were interviewed, um, really stands for itself and, and and clearly shows, unfortunately, the intent of the military and others to commit genocide, and that should help inform such a determination. But similarly, something that the U.S. government could do would be to join the case that has been brought forward to the International Court of Justice by um, the Gambia and supported by Canada and the Netherlands. Uh, that would be an incredibly important uh, political show of support for justice and accountability alongside what many have called for for a long time, which is unhindered humanitarian access uh, to northern Rakhine and to other parts of the country that have been um, denied access and humanitarian assistance. So, you know, when it comes to monitoring risks, uh, looking for the type of rhetoric that's being used, troop deployments, incitements of local mobs, um, fighting between ethnic armed groups and the Burmese military. Those are all things that on a day-to-day -day basis, um, colleagues within the U.S. government and on the Hill should be monitoring for. It's something that we and I know you are looking very carefully at. And then, of course, you know, the U.S. has said that they are back when it comes to supporting international efforts. And with that in mind, support for the special procedures at the United Nations Human Rights Council, um, including the U.N.'s Independent Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar, the Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in, in Myanmar, all of those types of efforts, pushing for briefings within the U.N. Security Council, help to put a spotlight on what is happening in the country uh, requires the military to uh, show some level, uh, ideally, of acknowledgement of the international concern and moderation in their behavior. But what would also be useful would be to not just leverage the UN fora, but also to work with ASEAN and regional human rights uh, entities, both civil society and intergovernmental mechanisms, because uh, the military may be more amenable to listening to uh, others within the region than in some cases, uh, for example, the U.S. or other uh, Western governments. So those are all steps that can be taken alongside continuing to support and foster connections between ethnic minority um, and religious minority leaders uh, and really trying to bring the voices of Burmese civil society to the fore in carving out what the future of the country looks like. But there are always a lot of very difficult questions around what actually changes the calculus of perpetrators' minds, which is why every situation needs its own context-specific response. And we need to really be trying to understand as much as we can the specific nuances of the various actors and evaluating on an ongoing basis what options are available to the U.S. government, to other governments, and trying to calibrate and coordinate our response so that we've got a truly international uh, effort underway to protect Rohingya and other vulnerable communities within uh, Myanmar. Certainly a lot of food for thought. Uh... And we'll have to leave it right here. I want to thank uh, Naomi Kikoler, director of the Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the Holocaust Memorial Museum, for her insights today. You can find more about the Holocaust Museum's work on the plight of Rohingya in Burma at uh, www.ushmm.org backslash genocide 
dash prevention. I wanted to get that out there again. USHMM.org backslash genocide dash prevention and look up Burma there. As always, you can find USERF's findings and policy recommendations uh, on Burma and other countries at our website, www.userf.gov, including that recent fact sheet I referenced on the status of Rohingya refugees in several Southeast Asian countries. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.